Good morning, Bethel family. So as you uh, see on your bulletin, uh, Mike Osborne from Trinity, I am not Mike Osborne, um, from Trinity Smyrna, he was going to be preaching this morning. I was away this week uh, with Hannah and her senior class on their senior trip. I was chaperoning, and so the plan was to have Mike come and preach. Uh, We really love those guys. We love Trinity Smyrna, um, great partnership. We've had lots of opportunities over the last few years to partner together. They, they support the Kirks, um, which we really appreciate. Um, but after the events of this week, losing Sarah Sagerstrom on Tuesday, uh, I ended up talking with Mike on Friday and saying, you know, I think we really need to focus on processing this grief together as a family. So that's what we're gonna, that's what we're gonna do this morning. Um, so if you're visiting, you're visiting, you're welcome, but you're, you're coming in on a family time here where we need to grieve together, we need to process that grief together, and we need God's help to do that. So um, just to give you a little explanation of, of why um, we're doing what we're doing this morning. So we're actually going to read Lamentations chapter 3 this morning. If you don't have a Bible, there's one in the pew in front of you, and you can find our passage on page <clears throat> 688. It's Lamentations chapter 3, <clears throat> and I'm going to Read verses 17 to 25, and then we're going to pray, um, pray for this time. We're going to pray for Sarah's family. Um, Mark is with us. Um, Carl and Karen are here. Um, Lynn and Nick, and um, also uh, it's good to have Scott um, and his fiance Katie, all the way from Denver. Good to have you here. The funeral is going to be on Wednesday this week, so there's going to be a visitation here at Bethel from 10 to 12, and then uh, the funeral at noon. So Bethel family, if you could please make sure that you park um, like on the street out in front or possibly over in the driveway of the farmhouse. We want to leave as much parking for... Um, other folks that are going to be coming. It seems like there may be quite a few kids coming from um, Concord and uh, maybe families as well. So we want to welcome them and make it easy for them to come in and join us uh, for this time. So just be sensitive and, and kind of let's make sure we park out of the way so that we leave space for everyone. Um, and also Sarah's cousins. I want to make sure I mention... Caroline and, and Margaret and Lizzie, um, you can just, just put yourself in each of their shoes and imagine uh, what they've been going through this week and what they're going to continue to be going through. Uh, our hearts are just heavy for them, and uh, we're praying for you all, and we love, we love you all. We want to love you well um, through all of this. So let's read Lamentations 3. Verses 17 to 25. If you want to stand with me in honor of God's word, and then you can be seated, and I'll pray for us, and then we'll consider this passage together. My soul is bereft of peace. I have forgotten what happiness is. So I say, my endurance has perished. So has my hope from the Lord. Remember my affliction and my wanderings, the wormwood and the gall. My soul continually remembers it and is bowed down within me. But this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. 
great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the soul who seeks him. This is God's word. You may be seated. Please pray with me. Father, we thank you that we can join together like this this morning and that we have a Father, a Heavenly Father, who is both strong and loving and tender, that we can pour out our hearts to you, that you are a refuge for us, We thank you that there are 10,000 reasons and even more to hope in you, to trust in you. But we need to hear them again. We need you. Our whole church family needs you, but especially this dear family that is grieving this just how do we even put words to the loss that they are experiencing? Lord, teach us to pray for them. Teach us to love them well. Help us. Help them. Help them with their grief. Would you please be near to them? You say that you are near to the brokenhearted and you save the crushed in spirit. So make good on that promise. For this dear family. Help them, each one, to run to you. And may they know your nearness as their good. May they know your grace and your kindness and your mercy and your strength. May they know you as a strong tower as the God of all comfort, as their shepherd and their friend and their protector. And Lord, we pray that you would help us as a church to be a refuge for them, to be a safe place for for them as they suffer. Help us to be wise with giving privacy and distance and wise with overtures of kindness and service and love and intentional presence. Help us to listen well. Help us to love well. And we need to hear from you this morning. Lord, we need you to orient us by your word. Thank you that you are not silent. Thank you that you haven't left us to our mental spinning and questions. Thank you that you certainly don't answer all of our questions. But Lord, we thank you that you have given us your word to guide us as a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. And would you please shine light into the darkness here this morning and help us. We know that the Segerstroms are not the only ones suffering this morning. There are others who are also going through deep waters, and I pray that you would help all the sufferers in this room. 
that you would also prepare those of us who are not going through deep trials right now because we certainly will. In this broken, fallen world, we will. And we all need to learn to love well those who are suffering. So help us. And we pray it in the tender and the strong name of our Savior, our suffering Savior, Jesus. Amen. So our hearts are heavy this morning. Um, You may be experiencing still the shock of it all, the sadness of it all. I mean, don't you just want to wake up and it not be true? It's hard to believe that it's true. We're grieving deeply for this family. We can only imagine the depth of their grief and the range of their emotions. Folks, nothing is going to fix this. The lives of the Segerstroms and their family members are forever altered. They're not going to get over this loss. Part of the reason I say these things is because we need to be wise. Sometimes we can say flippant things. We need to understand suffering and be wise to love well. They're going to be in deep trauma for a while. We need wisdom to love them well, and we need to hear from God. We need to know how to respond to deep loss and suffering and pain. And like I said, as I prayed, it's not just their situation. There are others who are going through really deep waters. So we need anchor points. We need a refuge. We need to know where to go. We need stability for chaos. We need hope for darkness and despair. We've got to have something to hold on to. When we suffer deeply, we can rage against this reality that we wish was not ours. There can be anger and bitterness and guilt and confusion and a hundred other emotional combinations. There can be so many questions. There's so much we don't understand. Sometimes it takes months or years or decades to even begin to see God's purposes. And sometimes we just will never know in this life. There's so much we don't know. But this morning, we're going to focus on what we do know, what we can know. Because this much we do know, that these things are true, that the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases, and that his mercies never come to an end. There is some really important truth that we need to know in the book of Lamentations, and we actually need to learn how to lament. And what better book to teach us than this one? Actually, in Hebrew, the name of the book is Ekah, which means how, which might strike you as a little bit odd, but it, look at chapter 1, verse 1. It starts out with this word. How lonely sits the city that was full of people, how like a widow she has become. So this is the city of Jerusalem. So the reason why the book is called How in Hebrew is it's this exclamation of how this city is filled with suffering. So let's look at our text beginning in verse 17 of chapter 3. My soul is bereft of peace. I have forgotten what happiness is. So I say my endurance has perished. So has my hope from Yahweh. Whenever you see those four capital letters, it's actually the name, the personal covenantal name of God, Yahweh. So my hope, so has my hope perished from Yahweh. And then he prays to Yahweh, remember my affliction and my wanderings, the wormwood, which means bitterness, and the gall. My soul continually remembers it and is bowed down within me. 
So just so you know, if you're not familiar with the book of Lamentations or what was going on, the writer here is not writing theoretically, you know, about suffering from some comfortable ivory tower position. The book is written in response to the destruction of Jerusalem in 587 B.C. It was horrible. So the book describes how Jerusalem fell, the depth of the destruction. There was death and assault and starvation. The writer describes this sorrow like his sorrow in chapter 2. Look at it in verse 11. He says, my eyes are spent with weeping. My stomach churns. My bile is poured out to the ground because of the destruction of the daughter of my people, because infants and babies faint in the streets of the city. So the Babylonians had come in and just sacked the city, and it was so bad that, look down in verse 20 of chapter 2. This is a horrific scene. Just so that you know how much, how deep the suffering was, behind our passage in chapter 3, 2.20. Look, O Lord, and see, with whom have you dealt thus? Should women eat the fruit of their womb, the children of their tender care? Should priest and prophet be killed in the sanctuary of the Lord? In the dust of the streets lie the young and the old. My young women and my young men have fallen by the sword. So it's in that context that this author writes chapter 3, verse 21. But this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. You can have hope in that context. This is not superficial suffering. This is deep suffering. So this is really helpful for us. Now just stop for a second and notice the pattern here between verses 17 to 21. Just follow with your eyes over those verses. He says, I've forgotten what happiness is. You see it there in verse 17? My hope has perished, verse 18. And then he says, Lord, please remember my suffering, verse 19. My soul continually remembers it, verse 20. But this I call to mind, this I remember, verse 21. Therefore, I have hope. So he's forgotten what happiness is. His hope has died. He's calling out to the Lord to remember. He certainly remembers. And then he remembers something else. He calls to mind reasons for hope, and his hope is resurrected. So how easy, it is, how easy is it in our suffering to forget what happiness is? It's written you know, thousands of years ago, and this is so relevant. I mean, you wonder if you'll ever smile again. All light of hope just seems to be extinguished. Everything could just seem dark with no hope of any light at all. You can just be plunged into despair. So where does this writer go? He's teaching us to lament like believers in God. So he's helping us actually walk through cycles of grief. He's taking us by the hand and walking us through the dark valleys of grief. So he first asked the Lord to remember his suffering. Don't forget about me. Do you see my suffering? Do something about it. Respond to it. He's asking the Lord to remember his suffering. He sure can't forget about it. It's continually before him, weighing on him, crushing him. He feels crushed beneath the weight of it. You see it there in verse 20. I mean, how true to life is this? But he doesn't stop there. He beckons us to follow him further on. Look at verse 21. But this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord, of Yahweh, never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. So our endurance might perish. Our hope might perish in the midst of the darkness of Suffering, but the steadfast, stubborn, covenantal love of God never perishes. It never comes to an end. That is something we need to remember. That's something that we need to call to mind if our hope is going to be resurrected. 
There is no end to his mercy. He is a limitless supply. The writer is beating a path for us. Where do we go in the midst of the darkness? He's beating a path so that we can follow him and find our way through our suffering. We need to learn to follow him. We need to learn to walk this path so often that we can find it in the dark. It sounds a lot like Hebrews 4. Since then we have a great high priest, Jesus the Son of God. Let us hold fast. Don't give up. Don't lose heart. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. His mercies never come to an end. They're available. We can come with confidence through Christ and it'll be ours. Those mercies are new every morning. So no matter how bad yesterday was, you can wake up and bank on the fact that mercy will be available to you. There's going to be a new opportunity to experience God's mercy and his wonderfully stubborn love. That is hope-giving, to remember that, to call that to mind. When things have been really hard or when our, our suffering can be for all kinds of reasons, So mercy available. Let's say your suffering is because you've blown it. You've failed the day before. The mercy's still going to be there. It's mercy. Mercy's for failures. So in suffering, sometimes we can think that our failures cut us off from the mercy of God. No, if you were perfect, you wouldn't need mercy. Mercy's not for the undeserving. Mercy's not for the deserving. It's the undeserving who know they need it. So we need to call this to mind. We need to remember that there is more mercy in Christ than failure in us. So there's always hope. So my supply, your supply, my resources, your resources may be completely depleted. But the Lord's storehouse of mercy is always open. And it's fully stocked. We can never use too much of his mercy. So we can call that to mind and have our hope awakened and kindled and resurrected. So when we're suffering, we need to remember that and come and get more, even if all we can do is crawl. And you know what? Sometimes it's worse than that. You can't even get there on your own. So you can call some brothers or sisters to pick you up and carry you to the throne of grace. That's what we're doing when we're, when we're praying for folks that are going through deep waters. Just like the paralytic whose friends carried him to Jesus. Your friends can, we can, through our praying and our loving support, carry people to Jesus when they can't get to him on their own. That's one of the ways that the church can be a safe place for sufferers. When we get there, we will not be turned away. We can Bank on all of this, all of this mercy, this steadfast love, because our God keeps his promises. His word is sure. Great is his faithfulness. It's the next phrase. They're new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. So in light of all of this, in light of this rock beneath our feet, I mean, when we're suffering, doesn't it feel like sometimes we're in emotional quicksand? We can't find footing this I call to mind, and there's a rock beneath our feet. Or you can feel like you're being torn apart by the storm that you're going through. This I call to mind, and there's a refuge. Everything can feel so chaotic and out of control. This I call to mind, and there is the stabilizing power of these promises. So these truths can be like divine light breaking into the dark prison of our despair. 
we are learning here as we follow this writer. We're learning where to go. We're learning where to run. We're learning what to do when we don't know what to do. We need to recall God's character, his grace, and run to him as our refuge. Choose him as our portion. Look at verse 24. Yahweh is my portion. This personal, powerful, covenantal, loving God. He is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. All other hopes, they're fragile, they're fleeting. All our other hopes can be blown up by our circumstances. The Lord is our rock and our refuge. He is our strong tower. Our hope is in him. So how we feel can be weak and fragile. Our, our hope can be weak, but he's not weak. He's not a fragile hope. He's rock solid. He is a solid rock. So we need to recall these things and run to him. He is good to those who wait for him, to the soul who seeks him, like verse 25 says. So not just this week, but I've had not a few moments in the last few weeks when I have not known what to do or what to think or even what to say to someone who's going through deep waters. And the Lord's brought me back to this passage a number of times. It's been so helpful to, okay, well, this I know I can call to mind. <laughs> I know this is true. Remember that passage in 2 Chronicles? We don't know what to do. There was this incredible threat of this army that was pressing in. And Jehoshaphat says, we don't know what to do, but our eyes are on you. That's a pretty good summary. We don't know what to do, but our eyes are on you. This I call to mind, therefore I have hope, and I'm helped, and then I can actually help others. So I find footing, and then I can help somebody else gain their footing. So now I just want to step back a little bit and try to consider some thoughts in light of this passage, some shepherding thoughts in light of this passage. First, I've said it before, we need to be a place that's safe for sufferers, okay? I think I've quoted from this a long time ago, uh, Carl Truman, who teaches up at Westminster Seminary. He once wrote a little article called, What Do Miserable Christians Sing? Or What Can Miserable Christians Sing? Listen, I'll, I'll quote a portion of it here. Having experienced and generally appreciated worship across the whole evangelical spectrum, from charismatic to reformed, I'm my, I am myself less concerned here with the form of worship than I am with its content. Thus, I would like to make just one observation. The Psalms, the Bible's own hymn book, and certainly Lamentations as well, have almost entirely dropped from view in the contemporary Western evangelical scene. I'm not certain about why this should be, but I have an instinctive feel that it has more than a little to do with the fact that a high proportion of the Psalter is taken up with lamentation, with feeling sad, unhappy, tormented, and broken. In modern Western culture, these are simply not emotions which have much credibility. Sure, people still feel these things, but to admit that they are a normal part of one's everyday life is tantamount to admitting that one has failed in today's health, wealth, and happiness society. Now, one would not expect the world to have much time for the weakness of the psalmist's cries. It is very disturbing, however, when these cries of lamentation disappear from the language and worship of the church. Perhaps the Western church feels no need to lament, but then it is sadly deluded about how healthy it really is. Perhaps, and this is more likely, it has drunk so deeply at the well of modern Western materialism that it simply does not know what to do with such cries and regards them as little short of embarrassing. Yet the human condition is a poor one. And Christians who are aware of the deceitfulness of the human heart and are looking for a better country should know this. He says, few Christians in areas where the church has been strongest over recent decades, China, Africa, Eastern Europe, would regard uninterrupted emotional highs as normal Christian experience. Of course not. It's filled with suffering. 
In the Psalms, God has given the church a language which allows it to express even the deepest agonies of the human soul in the context of worship. By excluding the cries of loneliness, and I'm not saying we, we do this, but I'm saying we do need to learn to lament. By excluding the cries of loneliness and desolation from its worship, the church has effectively silenced and excluded the voices of those who are themselves lonely and desolate, both inside and outside the church. And then he says this sad thing. In the last year, I've asked, whenever he wrote this, I've asked three very different evangelical audiences what miserable Christians can sing in church. On each occasion, my question has elicited laughter. As if the idea of a broken-hearted, lonely, or despairing Christian was so absurd to be comical. And yet I pose the question in all seriousness. Certainly, we dare not respond like that, but rather to cultivate a context where we are a safe place for sufferers. We've got to learn to lament personally. There are personal laments in the Psalms, a lot of them. And corporately, there are corporate laments a lot of them, in the Psalter. And here in Lamentations, even, there's personal lament and corporate lament. Now, it might be surprising to find out that in the midst of that kind of chaotic environment, so imagine, you know, just getting completely overrun by this big bully army, the Babylonians, and it's just horrific starvation and all this horrible scene. And this book is a literary masterpiece. Does that seem out of place? Do you know that chapters 1 and 2 are 22 stanzas long? It's an acrostic. So first line starts with Aleph, Beit, Gimel, Dalit, okay? Like Psalm 119. So there's 22 letters in the Hebrew alphabet. The third chapter is three times as long. And so three lines start with A, the equivalent, B, C, all the way down. There's 66 verses. Chapter 4 is also an acrostic. Chapter 5 is not, which is, there's, I'll mention why in a minute. Why am I bringing this up? Here is this book of Lamentations describing utter disorder and chaos and suffering. And it does it in this incredibly ordered, poetic way. Well, I imagine not many of us are familiar with Shakespeare, but you might have heard of the famous speech by Macbeth. So he hears of his wife's death, and a portion of it goes like this. Tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow creeps in this petty pace from day to day to the last syllable of recorded time, and all our yesterdays have lighted fools the way to dusty death. Out, out, brief candle. Life's but a walking shadow, a poor player that struts and frets his hour upon the stage and then is heard no more. It is a tale told by an idiot, full of sound and fury, signifying nothing. Now, why didn't he just say, life is short and pathetic, and then we die, and it's all in vain? Why was the poetic form worth the effort? Why did he take so much time to describe the vanity of life like that in poetic form? Well, Consider Lamentations again. Here's this elaborate poem. Why all this work? Why would you take this much work if there's this much suffering? How can you do all of that in the midst of grief? Why work out an acrostic? Well, first off, the point of an acrostic is that this is Lamentations from A to Z. It gives full expression to the author's grief. It gives help and instruction to others on how to grieve. This is the A to Z of lamentation. So its literary order is an attempt to make order out of chaos. There's other acrostics in the Bible that do the same thing. So Actually, the very work of ordering like this 
is a work at making order before God out of the chaos. There's another thing going on here. There's a carefully crafted meter. So it's a three-accent, two-accent form that creates this uneven cadence. It's almost like you're limping. And that's intentional. Like you're limping along, grieving behind a funeral procession. So the very form is appropriate to the content. We know this by experience. I mean, how many times have you experienced some, maybe you heard some horrific news, and then there's just something, some music that's playing or whatever that's just completely out of touch with where you're at in that moment. I mean, it's like back to 9-11. That happened, and they canceled the, the late-night shows. It just didn't go together. Or one time I was in the ER. A friend of mine suffered this traumatic brain injury. They were performing an emergency craniotomy to try to save his life. And I'm in the ER waiting room, and there's this banal comedy on the television in the ER. I want to throw a brick through the TV. So the form actually has a function. It's purposeful. It's teaching us how to lament. That we do limp through this life, this valley of tears. And the form, the order that's expressed in this poem is actually an attempt to bring order to the chaos that he's experiencing, that he's going through. So listen. I don't think we realize it, but this is exactly why we latch on to songs of lament. Do you have some songs that express suffering and hope that maybe in the past have been really meaningful to you because they, it's almost like they call you up into, you resonate with these truths and they reorient you. What you're doing is you're, you're being led along by that poet, by that songwriter, to be able to make sense of your grief and find hope. Like it brightens when you get drawn into these truths. That's exactly what's happening here with this poetry as well. So we need to learn. And you know what? If there are poets and songwriters among us, you need to help us. And when you find songs and poems like this, we help each other. You've done this. You've shared a song. If you're struggling, you've shared a song with another struggler. Have you ever done it? It's what we, it's what we do. So this is part of how we work to make sure that Bethel is a safe place for sufferers. It's got to be safe and acceptable to walk with a limp here. Deep suffering is hard to be around sometimes. We don't know what to say. We don't know what to do. So sometimes we just withdraw. We can run from it. We can avoid it. We can hide from it. Now, we certainly need to be people who give sufferers space and time and room and safety to weep and to fall apart. we also need to be people who can weep with those who weep. A willingness to enter into others' pain and bear their burdens with them. Barry Webb, Old Testament commentator, says this. He summarizes it well. He says, The acrostic form of the poems has the effect of giving grief a shape, which is itself a kind of resolution. Grief itself by its very nature is a rather formless thing. The mind of a person in deep sorrow characteristically moves in circles, returning again and again to the source of grief, unable to leave it and unable to resolve it. What the acrostic form does is to allow the grief to be fully expressed and yet at the same time sets limits to it. These poems explore grief in its many and varied aspects, viewing it first from one perspective, then from another and yet another. The whole gamut of human sorrow is explored, the A to Z of sorrow, and yet 
by that same acrostic pattern, the grief is shaped and led to a conclusion, a point of completeness where everything necessary has been said, at least for the time being, and the mourner can fall silent without feeling he has been stifled. In this sense, the acrostic form has, been, or has more than aesthetic significance. It has therapeutic and pastoral significance as well. And when he says that, that doesn't mean that you go through it and it's once and done. It's, this is the path that we keep walking as we keep working through our grief. It's to help us not wander aimlessly and spin and spin without direction and guidance. So that's what songs of lament do. They help us. They help us process. They take us by the hand and help help us stand and put one foot in front of the other again. So whether it's, it is well with my soul. So here's this sufferer who lost his kids and they were, you know, thrown overboard in the waves on this boat and he's, why would you write a song? But aren't you glad he wrote a song? And we sufferers can resonate with that and we learn from that sufferer how to go on when sorrows like sea billows roll over us and just threaten to drown us. No, no, no. It can be well with our souls. So he doesn't whitewash it. He went through really deep suffering. But he leads us through to hope. We sung 10,000 reasons. It's the same thing. Or how about blessed be your name? Echoing the words of Job. You give and take away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. So Lamentations is bringing form to the chaos. Think about it this way. This is poetic resistance. This is war with hopelessness and despair by song. Satan hates this. He doesn't want the light to break in. He wants to keep you in the dark dungeon of chaos and confusion. We can take up these songs as our own and refuse to yield to the darkness. Just one example. It's a song by Andrew Peterson called Always Good. Do you remember how Mary was grieving, how you wept and she fell at your feet? If it's true that you know what I'm feeling, could it be that you're weeping with me? Arise, O Lord, and save me. There's nowhere else to go. You're always good. Always good. He sung this at the funeral of his friend whose wife died in childbirth. So you see, it doesn't simplify suffering, but he's calling things to mind so that he has hope. Well, it's so hard to know what you're doing. He's still praying. Why won't you tell it all plain? And he goes on and says, so maybe the answer surrounds us, but we don't have eyes to see that you're always good, always good. This heartache is moving me closer than joy ever could, and you're always good. My God, my God, be near me. There's nowhere else to go. And Lord, if you can hear me, please help your child know that you're always good, always good. As we try to believe what is not meant to be understood, as we try to believe what is not meant to be understood, will you help us to trust your intentions for us that they're still good? Because you laid down your life and you suffered like I never could. You're always good, always good. So another poet that's helping us, that's leading us by way of a song of lament and also a song of hope. I want to also 
share some advice from another sufferer. Her name is Nancy Guthrie. And she actually did a, a seminar one time called, Is Your Church a Safe Place for Sad People? And she was interviewed. And the interviewer said, Why did you initially become interested in making churches a safe place for sad people? She said, Because I've been a sad person. And I know what it is to look to my church for companionship, practical help, prayer support, and theological clarity in the midst of overwhelming and perplexing sorrow. I remember attending a church choir retreat three months after burying my daughter and saying to the group, I'm not sinking into depression. I haven't lost my faith. I'm just sad, and I need you to let me be sad. The truth is, most of us are uncomfortable with sadness as individuals and as churches. We want to fix people and help them to feel better. And we are far less patient than God is with the process he uses to bring healing. But making a church a safe place for sad people is about much more than providing personal and practical support. A social club can do that. The gospel is what provides the solid truth that grieving people need to inform their feelings and undergird their hope. For a church to be a safe place for sad people does not merely mean that we offer comfort and acceptance Sometimes it means that we gently but boldly challenge misbeliefs or misunderstandings of Scripture. But make sure you put those two together and make sure you start with the patience. Because sometimes we so quickly run to the correction. And that's foolish. Sit in the dust and listen and weep. And when the time is right, and we pray for the Spirit of God's help to know when we can gently help with some of the questions. She also is asked, what are some common errors we make when, when trying to help someone go, going through a difficult time? She says, on a practical level, we say, just call me if I can help. The truth is, when you're going through a family crisis or grief, you don't really want to have to keep asking for help or organize all of the help you need. To have someone assume the responsibility for organizing meals and other practical help is a great gift. Even better is the person who figures out what's needed and simply says, I'm coming over Wednesday morning to do your laundry. Now hold on, just you need to have a relational connection before you show up to do laundry, okay? But the point still stands here. And Bethel, I love how we respond to needs like this, and there's such a desire to do so. It's a beautiful thing. Sometimes we're afraid of saying the wrong thing to someone who's hurting, so we say nothing, adding to his or her hurt by ignoring it. Or we're afraid that bringing it up will make the person sad, not realizing that our bringing it up actually allows that person to release some of the sadness they are already feeling. And then finally, she's asked, what is the uniqueness of a gospel-centered church in the way it ministers to people grieving a loss? She said, I don't remember a lot of what my pastor said when we stood at my daughter's graveside, but I remember him saying, this is where we ask, is the gospel really true? And I remember whispering to myself in that moment, yes. While many of us are content to stay in the shallow end of the theological pool when things are going well, Significant loss forces us into the deep end of the things of God, and that's a good thing. This is where our understanding of God, working out his plan to put an end to the brokenness of this world caused by sin, moves from a religious discussion outside of us to become a gospel reality at work in us. We want to understand the bigger picture of God's purposes in the world to make some sense of what has happened to us. The words we sing in worship have new meaning. Christ's victory over death is more precious. Our future hope is more real. So how did you respond when you heard the news of Sarah's death? What did you say? No. No. Just imagine the primal cry in the heart of her mother and her father, her 
siblings, her cousins, her aunt, her uncle, grandfather, grandmother. No. Where is God in this? And I am not here to offer theological musings, but to offer hope. That's what this book is offering. We don't know all the answers, but we do know this, that the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. And his faithfulness is great. And from our vantage point in human history, the clearest place to look is the cross of Jesus Christ. The steadfast love of the Lord flows to us from the cross of Christ. Every ounce of mercy that we can expect tomorrow morning is going to come blood-bought His faithfulness can be counted on. He will never leave us or forsake us precisely because Jesus was forsaken in our place. Where is God in this suffering? He is a God who suffers, who suffered to deal with our deepest suffering. So let's Look to the cross. Let's look to our God. Let's recall these things to mind so that we can have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. His faithfulness is great. Let's pray, and then we're going to sing of this hope that's ours in Christ.